This morning we will be looking at Luke chapter 14, from verse 25 down through the end of the chapter. As Jesus instructs us in what it means to be his disciple, to be a follower of Jesus. If you would now please give attention to the reading of God's word. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely without error. Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate? whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, O Lord, this morning that you would reach us by your word, that your word would grow strong and deep within our hearts, that we would seek after you, and that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we are about to embark upon a new year. It's the last Lord's Day of 2014. And when we come to the end of a year, it is a natural time to examine ourselves, to take stock of our lives and of the previous year, to think about what has gone by, and then to prepare for what is to come. And this is no less true in spiritual matters than in all other things. It is a good time to examine our own hearts 
and lives. And so this morning we have our Lord Jesus Christ teaching us what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. And so if you trust the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, now is a perfect time and this is a good text for you to think about what it means to be a disciple. If you are perhaps still wondering what Jesus is about and why the emphasis of so many people in church circles believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, then now is a good time to think about what it means to be a disciple. For you see, if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we must be a disciple of Jesus. And that sometimes means more than we think at first glance. Jesus shows us three things from this text this morning, three themes about following Jesus. First, we see that Jesus tells us that following Jesus is costly. It costs to follow Jesus. Secondly, we see that following Jesus is deliberate. It is something that we must think about, think about the consequences of, think about what it means. And then thirdly, we see that following Jesus is not just costly and not just deliberate, but it is life-changing. To follow Jesus means that we are changed. Let's begin then by looking at verse 25 and to see what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus is speaking to the crowd here and he says... Or Luke tells us, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said. Now, we must understand what is going on here in this context. Jesus is at the height of his popularity. He has been healing the sick, casting out demons. He has been preaching the good news of the kingdom. And at this point in time, a great many people are following him. There is a huge crowd, as you can imagine. There is Jesus, there is the disciples, the the apostles around him closely, perhaps those who have followed him for a very long time, and then there is a long crowd of people in his train. But what is really happening here? Luke tells us that there is a great crowd, crowds, plural, that accompanied Jesus. What it means is there are people who aren't really following Jesus in the sense of being his disciples. But they are, we might translate the word this way, they are journeying together with Jesus. They are going along with him. Now, why would they do that? Well, I think the first and most obvious answer would be the excitement. Could you imagine what it would be like to... Go along with Jesus? You would never know what he was going to do tomorrow. Is he going to heal someone of a deadly disease? Is someone who's mad with a demon going to be healed? What is he going to teach? What is he going to do? Is he going to call down those proud, insufferable religious types? We've got to follow Jesus just to see what's going to happen next. Why else might a group travel along with Jesus? It's not just for the excitement. There's also a sense of advantage. Think of what would define 
20th century American Christianity. There's an advantage to being in church, isn't there? We all know the stories of people who join churches and go to church so they can sell more insurance. So that they can build their book of business. So that they can meet new people. Church as social club. It was a popular thing in the 20th century to be in church. It was a thing that made you respected. My, how things have changed, haven't they, in just but one generation. But if you can imagine what life was like 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, you could understand why great crowds would follow Jesus. And what Jesus has done is he has just given multiple invitations to his kingdom. He has invited those who are around him to believe and to come and enter the kingdom of God. But now what Jesus is going to do is to explain to them and to you and me what it means to enter his kingdom. Jesus is going to tell us that following him is costly. And the first cost is that your allegiance must be to Jesus. Jesus doesn't want to issue this invitation and to get a lackluster response. It's Perhaps what some of you have experienced over even these holidays. You invite some people over for dinner or to come and to be at your home. And you get the response of, well, I'm not really sure what we're doing. If we don't have anything better to do, we'll stop by. Or perhaps you've been on the other end of it. You're invited to someone's home and you say to your wife or to your husband, you know, should we go? I'm not really sure I want to do that. Well, who do you think is going to be there? What do you think we're going to do? What do you think we'll eat? You see, Jesus doesn't want following him to be a byproduct of our life. He wants your primary allegiance. And he gets our attention by the way he speaks. Do you hear this? He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that doesn't sound like Jesus, does it? It's very jarring. So what we need to do is think about what Jesus is saying and to use good principles of biblical interpretation. The very first thing that we cannot do is look at this text and say, you know, I don't like that. It doesn't seem to me to make sense to be not liking my father and mother and my wife. I don't like that. Therefore, it must not mean what it says. You see, that is a slippery slope that takes us in a very bad place. It's far too easy for us to only want to believe what we think is right and what we think is true. So what does Jesus mean then? Is Jesus counseling us? Am I to tell you right now, couples go home and split up. Buy separate houses. Hate each other. Kids hate your parents. No, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying either. Not because it's inconvenient, but because if that were true, then it would contradict God's word. Jesus is not going to tell us that the only way we could be his disciple is by breaking the fifth commandment every single day. You shall honor your father and mother. 
He's not telling us that the only way we can follow him is to break the seventh commandment every day. Hate your wife, your husband. No. So what then does it mean? Jesus is being very absolute. He is saying you cannot be my disciple unless you do this. I think what Jesus is doing here in the context of keeping God's law and in the context of Jesus telling us that we are to love others, even our enemy, what he is doing is he's telling us we need to feel very strongly about putting him first and making everything else second. Perhaps you might think of it this way. I love holiday meals. I'm sure you do. And perhaps you've been to one of these wonderful holiday meals that has not one, not two, but three or four choices of meats. And you have this one plate that you go around with. And if you are like me, you love turkey. Ham? Not so much. You go to the buffet table. And you go and you see there is turkey and ham. And you say, hmm, I'm going to get some of this turkey. Oh, it's good turkey. I'm going to pile it onto my plate. Someone comes up next to you and says, did you see the ham? Don't bother me with the ham. No, really, you've got to try the ham. Put some of the turkey back. You've got to have some of this ham. And you say, are you crazy? Why would I not fill up my plate with all the turkey I can possibly get? I hate ham. I could care less about ham. But you ate it last week. Well, that was because there was only ham available last week. Do you see the point? Jesus is telling us that we need to treat everything else as inconsequential. Treat everything else as if we could care less about it compared to Jesus. Sometimes we need to be shocked into thinking that. That as much as we love our wives, as much as we love our husbands, we are not to follow them or love them or care for them as much as Jesus. No matter how sweet and wonderful our children and grandchildren are, no matter how many precocious things they can do and how we talk to others about how we love them, that is all good, but we are still to love them less than Jesus. Because you see, the truth is, we can't really love our spouse, we can't really love our parents, we can't really love our children properly unless we first put in place the priority of Jesus. He puts everything else in place. Our dearest affections are second to Jesus. There's a second cost that Jesus talks to us about Beyond even allegiance to him, there is a sacrifice that comes to us in following Jesus. Jesus says in verse 27, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Again, note the absolute language. If you will be a disciple of Jesus, you must take up your cross. Now, Remember the context of what it means to take up your cross. Roman crucifixion was the most shameful, worst death that you could suffer. It was an execution that was reserved for the worst of criminals and slaves. Think about it in the context of our own penal system. We have lawsuits all the time 
to make sure that our death penalty is carried out in such a perfect way that the person doesn't suffer any pain. Now imagine that an execution was done in which you had to carry around the very instrument that you would be killed upon. Shameful. It's a reminder of your own mortality and death. It is a reminder each and every day of what is at stake. Now you see, the disciples did not know then what we know now. That Jesus would be crucified, that he would carry his own cross. But Jesus did. And he's giving them a visible reminder, not just for that moment, but for all eternity. Because these words, if we're honest with ourselves, mean much more. They strike much closer to the heart if you close your eyes and you think about the story of Good Friday. Don't they? You see... Oftentimes, we think that our cross is a different thing. We think what it means to bear our cross is we have the flu and it's bad. And we say, we all have our cross to bear. Or our children won't go to the college that we want them to go to. Well, we all have crosses to bear, don't we? We can't even say that we're sick and in and out of the hospital constantly and think we all have a cross to bear. But you see, that's not the kind of cross that Jesus is talking about. Those who refuse to follow Jesus, those who hate Jesus, get sick. Have fights with their children. Have challenges and difficulties. What Jesus is talking about here is a reminder to us that we will suffer for following Jesus. That when we claim to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we stake our lives upon Jesus, we give up all claim to our own lives. They're not ours anymore. This reminder of the cross reminds us that we have given up all of our rights in order to receive the grace of God. You see, this is a real problem with modern Christianity, especially in America. We think that somehow, somewhere, perhaps this coming year in 2015, as we finally read through the Bible in a year, we will find that obscure chapter buried somewhere with the Bill of Christian Rights. The rights that we have that no one else should deny us. The rights not to be made fun of. The rights to be taken seriously the rights to a job promotion no matter what we say about Jesus. The rights to popularity. But you see, please do read through the Bible this year, but you will not find that Bill of Rights. You see, too often we think that this is the case. And Jesus reminds us that following Him is costly. It requires sacrifice. If we're not willing to die for Jesus, then really are we willing to live for Jesus? To live for Jesus as He calls us to live, not as we want to live. The second thing we see here that our Lord Jesus tells us is that following Jesus is a deliberate 
thing. It is not just costly, it is deliberate. And he tells us two stories here. Each a story that asks a question. In verse 28, he begins to tell us the story of the man who is building a tower. And it's a question that comes, and that question is, can you afford to follow Jesus? Think about that for a minute. Can you afford to follow Him? I don't mean in dollars and cents. Can you afford this? Jesus wants this to sink in to us. He tells us the story of a man who begins to build a tower, who lays the foundation, and who has not calculated what it will cost to actually build the tower. And so what does he do? He stops halfway through. And it becomes one of these projects that are visible in so many cities. You look at this building and you say, what could that possibly be? And someone says, a half-finished building. Why would anybody half-finish a building? Because he was a fool. He didn't think about it. He didn't think what he needed to do. He just started. You see, Jesus wants us to be deliberate about following him. He uses deliberate language, financial language. He says, you have to sit down and count the cost. Now, you know what that means, don't you? Every child here knows this. Every young person. Because when things get serious and you need to figure things out, what do mom and dad say? Sit down. Let's think about this. Get out some paper. Right? Don't think running around. Let's be careful about this. You do this when you budget, don't you? Who budgets successfully by saying, you know, I, I think I have this much money coming in and I'd like to spend... Sort of this amount on these type of things. And then they're surprised that they have more month than money. Now, what do you do? You sit down and you calculate and you lay out all of the income that you have coming in and all of the things that you spend. And what happens when at the end of the month, as you calculate these things out, there is $500 more expense than income? What do you do? You sit and recalculate and you figure it out so that you can make the cost. That's what Jesus is saying. As we approach Jesus, as we approach our spiritual well-being, we must count the cost deliberately. Otherwise, we're like those who buy a house. Sure, they can pay for it. And then it's empty with no furniture. Because they haven't determined the cost. They think the cost of the house is just the mortgage without the taxes and the utilities and upkeep and the repairs, right? If we're going to be that deliberate with a home, shouldn't we be that deliberate with our lives in following Jesus? There's a second story that Jesus gives to us. It asks a second question. It's in verses 31 and 32. And it's kind of the opposite question. It's not just, can you afford to follow Jesus? Have you thought through the consequences of that? It's, can you afford not to follow Jesus? Have you calculated that cost? The cost of not following Jesus. He tells the story of a king who's calculating whether he can go out to war against another king. Now, war is a very serious business, right? You don't go out to war and just say, you know, I'm pretty sure it'll work out. I think we have enough planes and do we have enough guns? I think we might have enough guns. Enough people? No. When you go out to war, what do you do? 
You make sure that your generals know everything they need to know. You make sure you know the terrain. You make sure you have enough troops. Actually, you make sure you have more than enough troops. You underestimate. But what Jesus says here is that we are to approach God in the same way. You see, so often in our day, people look at God and approach God in a lackadaisical way. They simply hope things will work out for the best. Think about the folly of saying, well, you know, it's only eternity. I'm sure I've done enough good things that it'll work out all right. I'm sure God will be pleased with my life. Well, why? Well, I've just got a good feeling about it. Really? Do you remember the old days before GPSs? Did you just drive off and say, well, I've got a good feeling that I can find Wyoming? No. You make sure you have a map. You make sure you know where you're going. You make sure you know where you can stop and get enough gas, where you can stop and sleep, where you can stop and eat. You don't just drive off. That's for the movies and the funny papers. No. And that's what Jesus says we need to counter-effect that way of thinking in our own lives. We can't just think things will work out right. We have to give forethought. Have you given forethought this past year as to who God is? That He's perfectly holy. That His law is just and good. That He requires obedience to 100% of his law, 100% of the time in thought, word, and deed. Have you thought about yourself? Have you given forethought to who you are and your own weakness? Have you thought about how often you lose your temper? Or how often you exaggerate the truth? Have you thought about how weak you really are? You see, in a very real way, you are like this king. When the king sees that the other king is twice as powerful as he is, that he has no ability to win this war, that the other king is mighty, he sends for peace as soon as he can. He doesn't pretend things will work out. He doesn't pretend things are good. He does not deny reality. Pretending will not help you. Ignoring who the other king is will not help you. You see, when we understand how strong the Lord is and how weak we are, we realize we must come to peace with Him immediately. Have you come to peace with the Lord God? Or are you still thinking that even though he's God, you can give him a good sales pitch? That you can trick him? That you can somehow make your way through? You see, the wise person, the one who would follow Jesus, understands that you cannot afford not to follow Jesus. He is your only hope. Not your best hope, your only hope. Jesus is not trying to narrow the way 
into his kingdom. He is trying and succeeding in showing us that the way is narrow and we ought not to pretend it is broad. We must take that into account and we must be prepared if we will follow him. The third and final thing that Jesus shows us is that following Jesus is life-changing. We see this in verses 33 through 35. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now again, we must look at this and understand what Jesus is saying. I think we are safe to say that Jesus is not saying none of us should own anything. Because after all, Jesus owned things. He owned his cloak, shoes. But we also have to remember that Jesus didn't exactly own a lot of things. He wasn't the wealthiest man in town. Spirituality, following Jesus, being like Jesus does not mean being the most successful person in town. There are liars and cheats and charlatans that will tell you that. That you will know you are closest to Jesus, that you are following Jesus, if God blesses you with Cadillacs and mansions and money. And I say, where does it say that in the Bible? You see, what Jesus is telling us is, part of who we are is our priorities. What do you place first in your life? You're not sure? Think about it this way. What takes up most of your time? What do you enjoy most? What do you look forward to most? What are you most disappointed when you don't get to do it? This is a real challenge for many of us. It would not be the most disappointing thing if we forgot to read our Bible today. Or didn't get to church. If we're sick on Sunday, it's not nearly as bad as if we're sick on the Friday we're supposed to go to the movies with all of our friends. Right? You see, we have to understand what our priorities are. If Jesus makes us a new creation in Christ, if we trust in Him by faith, and He gives us new life and makes us a new creation, we cannot be what we once were. That's what Jesus means. We have to put aside all other things and focus on Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we live a life of nothing but staring at our Bibles. We can enjoy a good meal, a good conversation, We can travel, we can do things, but all of those things are nothing when compared to Jesus. That's what he is saying here. We have to be willing and able to give up anything and everything for Jesus. This is an especially challenging word for American Christians. You are not called in contemporary times to give up your home. For Jesus. Any of you had your homes burned down recently because you publicly said you're a follower of Jesus? Our brothers and sisters in India and in Africa and in Asia have. None of you have had your children forcibly removed from you for following Jesus. The day may come when that's an actual truth. 
when agents of the state come and ask you, are you praying with these kids? Are you telling them about this Jesus? Because that's abuse. We're going to take your kids away. You see, we have to be ready to let loose of anything this world has so that we can hold tightest to Jesus. When we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is not a justification for everything that we are already doing. When we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is life-changing. All of our priorities change. All of our thoughts and our purposes change. We are a new creation in Christ and we are focused upon Jesus and we follow Him deliberately, even though the cost is high because we have been changed. What are you willing to give up this morning? Are you willing to sacrifice for Jesus? There's one final thing that we see here that's life-changing. It's, it's an odd couple of verses in verse 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now, this is an odd statement because salt is, after all, salt, right? It's sort of the definition of salt to be salty. And if it's not salty, what is it? It's not salt. What does that mean? Well, I think what Jesus is telling us is a disciple is a disciple. Now, you say you're confusing me even more. What does this mean? It means only the reality will do. If it's not salt, don't pretend it is. It won't be salty. Salt retains its saltiness. Please, I'll give you some culinary advice. Do not go home this afternoon and prepare your meal and dump sand on it. Even if you say, this is wonderful salt, as you're putting it on it, it will still taste horrible. Pretending it's salt will not make any difference at all. You see, that's what Jesus is saying. Pretending to be a disciple does not make you a disciple. Only a disciple is a disciple. If you want to follow Jesus, you actually have to follow Jesus. You can't just talk about following Jesus. You actually have to do it. This is the definition of what a disciple is. It's one who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and follows Him. And if we are disciples of Jesus, then others will know. They will see. Because the reality will be there. Jesus wants us to see this and He wants us to understand. He puts an exclamation point with underlining. Look at the last verse. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Anytime Jesus says this in the scripture, it is something he wants us to listen to. Hey, listen up. If you would be a disciple of Jesus, if you would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you would travel to the celestial city, then you must listen. 
You must be ready to put aside everything else for Jesus, making Him your first and only priority, giving allegiance only to Jesus. You must be ready to die to self, to sacrifice and suffer that Jesus might get the glory. You must be willing to say with John the Baptist, I must decrease and He must increase. You must be ready to renounce everything and all that you have. And you must lose all to gain Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for showing us what it means to follow our Lord Jesus. Help us this day, O Lord, for we fall short. Help us this day, O Lord, for we are weak. Help us to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.